Good afternoon. That was very nearly good morning, but good afternoon. It's great to see you all this morning. If we've not already met, my name is Aaron, uh, and I'm really looking forward this morning to picking back up with our sermon series in the book of Luke that we last looked at uh, back in December. Now, it's been a, a few weeks and a whole Christmas since we looked at this, so I'm just going to spend the next few minutes, the first few minutes, um, setting the scene and reminding us of the context of today's passage. So, we're looking at chapter 15 today. So, in the previous uh, passage, which was Luke 14 through verses 12 to 24, what we read was Jesus, he told many people this parable of the great feast in which a man held a banquet and he invited many, many people to come. But when it came to party time, at the very last minute, everybody started cancelling. And quite frankly, their excuses for why they cancelled were lame. I've just got married. I've just bought a field. I've got some new animals. So the man's response to this was he just went out, he sent his servants out to go into the streets and just invite anybody they could find. And they invited the most lowly people according to the way that society would have seen them. And these people came and they took the place of the original guests in the feast. This is then followed by Jesus turning to the crowds and he said to them, in no uncertain measure, that if they were to follow him, then first they've got to count the cost. He even went as far as to say this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and child and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And of course, as Steve pointed out when he preached on this, in the context of Jesus' teaching, we know this can't mean in order to follow Jesus, you must despise your family. Because we know from Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So Jesus isn't teaching us here to despise our families in order to follow him. But our love for our mother, our brother, our father, our sister, which ones do I say? Mother, brother, father, sister, children, ourselves even, that love must fall well, well short of our love and our obedience to Jesus. So the message of chapter 14, which, like I say, precedes what we're going to be looking at this morning, is quite clear. All are invited to the great banquet. But before we accept this invite, we must understand that it comes with an entry requirement. We must be hungrier for what God is serving up than we are for any other pleasures or temptations that the world is offering us. We must be hungrier for God than any food or anything else that is in our lives. Okay, with this in mind, let's read today's passage. So we're going to start with Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. So if you have your Bibles, if you could turn there now. So this is Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. 
Now, considering what we've just read from chapter 14, this highlights a really interesting contrast, doesn't it? On one hand, you have the tax collectors. So just by way of kind of explanation, the tax collectors were Jews who have betrayed their own people in order to collect money for their occupiers, for the Romans. And these tax collectors, they did this for their own selfish gain. And they're lumped in with the sinners. Now, notice how in the New Testament, people are often described by what they do. So you have Peter the, fish, uh, Peter the fisherman, or Luke the physician, Joseph the carpenter. Of course, thinking about tax collectors, you have Levi the tax collector. Now, all of these men sinned, but that's not what they were primarily known for. They were known for, for their jobs. However, if you started to become known as, say, Bob the sinner, then it would make you realize that you're not exactly highly thought of by the people around you. But that is exactly what we see these people labeled here. They are primarily known as sinners. But these tax collectors, these sinners, these moral outcasts, we read here that they drew near to Jesus. But on the other hand, the Pharisees, the scribes, those that would be seen as most holy, those seen as most religious, most righteous, on hearing that all are invited, but to enter, we must put God first, they didn't receive this news with joy. Rather, it tells us here that they grumbled. Clearly, they didn't understand what Jesus had said. He had told them that the lowest of the low will be invited to the banquet rather than those who have rejected him. And here they are, the, ta- the Pharisees and the scribes, they are up in arms. Why are they up in arms? Because Jesus is eating with the lowly. So what's the difference between the tax collectors and the sinners versus the scribes and the Pharisees? Why is their response so different to what Jesus has just taught? Well, we see this in the transition between chapters 14 and 15. So let's read from chapter 14, verse 34, and then through to the first verse of chapter 15. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. The difference is the tax collectors and the sinners in their brokenness had ears to hear what Jesus was saying. The result being, as we read here, that they drew even nearer to hear more more of what Jesus had to say. Jesus said in John 10 verses 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, this should be encouraging news for all of us this morning. While hopefully nobody here is known as Bob the Sinner, the truth is all of our hearts hold sin. Whether you're a tax collector or a religious leader, you have sinned. And in doing so, you have offended a holy God. A God so holy that the only righteous act in response to this 
offense that we have caused him is to pour out his wrath. But as we read here in John chapter 10, if we are counted as his sheep, if we hear his voice, if we follow him, then we will never receive this wrath. In contrast, we will receive an eternity in his hand. This is the exact opposite. And look at those who have accepted this invitation from Jesus in Luke 15. Look at those who have heard his voice, who are following him. It is the broken. The people who are following Jesus are those who bring nothing to the table. But guilt and shame. And let me be really clear on this. This is all of us. This should be all of us. We have all fallen infinitely short of a glorious, holy God. We are all deserving of his wrath. To enter his banquet, every single person in this room requires infinite grace to be able to enter into that feast, earned for us at the cross of Christ. So no matter what you've done, you need to see there is hope. We just need to incline our ear to hear what he has to say and then follow him. And in contrast, in an inverse perhaps of what we might expect, those that were religious, those that were self-righteous, those that thought they could enter the banquet on their own terms, they did not understand or hear the voice of God. Because their hearts had exalted them so highly, they were not able to see that love for God must usurp their pride, their love of their own knowledge, their love of the many idols that they put in place. Ultimately, their love of sin and of self. Okay, let's turn back to the passage and read verses three and four, and then we're going to jump forward and read verse eight. So he told them this parable, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Then jumping forward, like I say, to verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and, and sweep the house and diligently seek until she finds it? Now these two parables tell of stories of people losing something of relative insignificance. One sheep out of a hundred or one coin out of ten. But in spite of this, the protagonists in each of the stories, they prioritize finding the one, the one sheep, the one coin, above all else. Now, I have three children, each of which I love dearly and I love equally most of the time. Now, several years ago, we were at the beach with um, my church family uh, in the UK, and I realized that I hadn't seen Oscar for for a good few minutes. And he was maybe, I don't know, three at the time, so it was a little bit concerning. So I was kind of scouting around the group, like dads do when they've lost a child and mum doesn't know yet. So I was kind of looking around, seeing, okay, where is he? I can't see him. And my friend Matthew came over and he said, you've lost a child, haven't you? But you're trying not to freak Tash out. And I'm like, yeah. So we spent a couple of minutes kind of walking around the group, seeing if we could see Oscar, and we couldn't. And after a couple of minutes, I realized it hit me that Oscar was lost. Now, any parent who's been in this situation, maybe at the mall or at the beach or or at the supermarket, you know that utter feeling of dread 
when you think that your child has got lost. And at that moment, when I realized he wasn't in the group, my sole priority became to find my son. My other children were safely in the group. The meat on the barbecue that I was fretting about, whether it was overcooked because it was black on the inside, on the outside, or whether it was undercooked and kind of jelly-like in the middle, all of a sudden, that lost all significance. The issues that I'd been having in the week before, I completely forgot about. My boy was lost. He was far more in need than any of these other things, than my children, than my issues during the week. So I needed to find him above all else, my number one priority. And Oscar's here this morning, so we know this story has a happy ending. But just as an aside, three-year-old boy, he'd wandered off maybe a kilometer, 1,500 meters down the beach. But back to my main point, when when I realized Oscar was lost, he was my only priority. It's not that I stopped caring about my other children or I wanted to eat char-grilled yet raw chicken. And this is the message that Jesus is giving us in this parable. He places a high priority on those who are lost, those that don't know him, because these are the people that need Jesus the most. And you may be here this morning, or you may be watching over live stream, and you're thinking, Jesus cannot, Jesus does not, Jesus would not care about me. I don't pray I don't read my Bible. My life is a mess. There's that thing that I did years ago. Jesus would never forgive me for that. I'm trapped in these destructive patterns of behavior, day in, day out. It's incongruent with following Jesus. Jesus would probably be happy that I am not part of his flock. Now, I really want to say to you this morning, this could not be more untrue. This is a lie. If you are living apart from Jesus, then as we see here, you are his priority. He came to seek and to save those who are far from him, tax collectors, sinners, those that recognize their need for him. So if this is you this morning, again, I beg you to incline your ear to Jesus and to hear his voice and to follow him. And the result of this is marvelous. Let's read what happened in the two stories that Jesus told. So firstly, verses five to seven in the parable of the lost sheep. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. And then to follow up the parable of the lost coin, verses 9 and 10. And when she found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now there's a pretty strong theme in those verses of joy and of rejoicing. He lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Rejoice with me. There will be more joy in heaven. Again, rejoice with me. There is joy before the angels. And this joy, this joy in heaven, the joy of the Father, 
This happens when somebody repents, one person, when they repent, when they turn their back on the temptations that this world has to offer and they turn their life over to Jesus as Lord and Saviour. But to make this all the more shocking, to make this all the more amazing, none of this is achieved by their own efforts. The sheep and the coin didn't find themselves. They don't have the ability to. They were found, they were rescued by their owner. I love verse 5 where it says, when he has found it, talking about the sheep, he laid it on his shoulders, rejoicing. This is what I did when I found Oscar on the beach. There was probably a temptation to kind of tell him off, but that's not what I did. I picked him up, I hugged him, I kissed him, and I carried him back to the rest of the group. This is what Jesus does for us. He carries us back on his shoulders, and he does so full of joy. He is rejoicing. And maybe that sheep that he was carrying, maybe it saw a kind of pretty clover field or something that it was tempted to jump into. I'm I'm not really kind of up on what sheep are into these days, but maybe a clover field would tempt it. But it didn't. The sheep just trusted in the shepherd, which is what we're called to do. We will see things that tempt us away from Jesus, to jump out of his arms. But we're called just to stay in our Savior's arms, regardless of what comes our way. And we can be safe in the knowledge that he will hold us firm and he will carry us back to the flock if we are far from him. And he will do this rejoicing at our submission to him. Not that we're doing anything, but submitting. This is amazing grace. We read part of Isaiah 53 earlier, but we're going to read a longer section now because it really helps us to see and to feel the cost to Jesus in doing this for us. So we're going to read Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 10. Now, this was written um, before Jesus came to the earth as a man. So this is a prophecy of what Jesus was to do. So verses 4 to 10, Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, And afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now, if you ever feel tempted to question 
the joy in heaven at the repentance of a single heart that is far from God turning towards him, at that repentant heart, then read this passage and consider the price that Jesus had to pay. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In contrast to today's passage, it's not just one sheep that has wandered away from the flock. All of us have turned away from Jesus. But in going to the cross, he has paid the price of our iniquity, turning God's wrath away from us and onto Jesus. In other words, he has found us in our sin and he has rescued us. And we can read this in horror as we consider the price that Jesus paid. He is spotless, innocent, blameless, the only one who is righteous. He was perfect. He is perfect. Yet he was stricken for all, even those that have committed the worst sins our minds can conceive. But we must remember, as we read here, this was the will of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. At the cross, Jesus became the guilt offering, the sin offering, the blood sacrifice through whom we have forgiveness of sins. The result of the cross is his plans and his purposes for man, for each of us can be redeemed by faith in Christ alone so that in the ages to come, he can display the incomparable riches of his incredible grace expressed in this incredible kindness to us through Christ Jesus. And we, in response, can join with the choirs of heaven and sing our praise to the glory of God for all eternity. The price that Jesus paid is inconceivable. The eternal joy to come from the presence of his glory is unimaginable. When we see this price, when we understand the glory of God, then we can begin to grasp why there is such rejoicing in heaven for each rebellious heart that repents of its sin and submits to Jesus. Okay, so let's take a moment to to pause and consider the flow of what we've looked at this morning. So in chapter 14, we discovered that all are invited, but to enter, you must be hungrier for God than you are for any other pleasure or temptation. And then we read, that those who are the hungriest are those that consider themselves lowly, those that know their brokenness. It is these people that we read that have ears to hear God. Then Jesus goes on to tell the two parables that show his priority to seek and to save the lost, highlighting the joy in heaven that comes each time a repentant heart or sorry, each time a heart is repentant. And of course, as we've just seen, our understanding of this joy is magnified 
when we consider the extent of the sacrifice that Jesus has paid, that Jesus became on the cross. So as we consider what the application to us for this is, I think there's two things that we need to focus on. Now, the first is a question that we need to ask ourselves, and that is, do you have ears to hear Jesus? Like the tax collectors and the sinners, are you really aware of the depth and the consequence of your sin? Or like the Pharisees and the scribes, do you feel that actually you're good enough by your own merit to enter into the presence of God for the great eternal banquet? Our sin, no matter how we may feel it compares to our neighbor or our friends or to other people, our sin is so heinous to our holy God, it creates an infinite divide between us and him. The outcome, the wages of our sin is eternal separation from God, with his wrath being poured out upon us. Please do not be fooled into believing it is anything other than absolutely hideous, the result of our sin. So much so that as we've looked at this morning, Jesus came to this earth to die, to die on our behalf as our perfect sacrifice, fully taking this wrath that God owes us, knowing separation from the Father. There was no other way. In order for us to know peace with God, in order for us to enter his eternal banquet, this price had to be paid. Jesus did all of that because of my sin. Jesus did all of that because of your sin. My sin, your sin, is far more serious than we can even comprehend. If you don't feel this, then my encouragement is open your Bible and read. This is all over the pages of Scripture. In the Old Testament, particularly where we see the people of God trying again and again and again to reach God's perfect standard, but again again, they were failing again and again and again. And then, of course, in the New Testament where we read and we see the magnitude of what Jesus did in order to achieve this for us. And pray that God would open your eyes to see the extent of this. And to be clear, this is not so that we then become down on ourselves and kind of wallow in low self-esteem, thinking, woe is me, I'm, I'm an unworthy sinner. Of course, we need to see that we are an unworthy sinner. But then we have the opposite result because when we know this, we know and we can understand the extent of our forgiveness. And we can draw near to him and we can find our hope. We can find our security. We can find our desire to be loved. Indeed, we find our salvation in the only place that it can truly be satisfied. Believe me, if you are seeking wellness, then Jesus is what you are really seeking. And it is only in him that you'll find it. So that's the first response. Let's see our need for a savior and incline our ear to hear his voice. Then secondly, we must see, we must understand that Jesus' priorities must become our priorities. Now, I'm pretty sure that in about 50% of sermons that I ever preach, uh, I end up quoting the Great Commission. But hey, it's what we're called to do, so I'm going to do it again this morning. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20 say this, 
And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Make disciples, baptize them, teach them everything Jesus taught. Jesus' mission is our mission. Jesus' priorities are our priorities. We are called to be the people that go out and look for the sheep. We are called to, to light a light and sweep the house to find the coin. And there are many reasons that many of us will find this really difficult. I think one common difficulty is we just maybe feel we don't have the confidence to actually speak up. Maybe you've tried. I know I've certainly tried at times to tell people about Jesus, and I just end up getting kind of tongue-tied. At this point, we must hold on to the promises that we've just read in Matthew 28. Firstly, Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. Our words don't save people. We just share the gospel. We share our story. It's Jesus that has the power to change hearts. But to be clear, this does instruct us, Jesus does instruct us here to make disciples, a fundamental part of which is sharing the gospel. And secondly, he promises to be with us always to the end of the age. Of course, we have a responsibility to be reading our Bibles, to be in the Word, so that we have real clarity and we have real understanding when we're sharing the gospel. We need to understand it in order to share it with others. Of course we do. And if we're not rooted in the truth, then it may be that what we say comes out wrong. But if we are trusting Jesus, if we are rooted in him, we can be confident that he is with us, that his Holy Spirit will guide us as we are obedient to him. And it may feel as though it comes out in a, in a garbled way, but as I've said, it's not our eloquence, it's not our impressive speech that can save anybody, that can change people's hearts. It is only Jesus that can do this. We just need to be obedient and tell them of what we know. And the other common fear is the fear of man, what people think of us. Now, at some point or another, I'm sure that every single one of us would have um, would have would have felt this. I know I feel this daily. What, what do people think of me if I were to say this, to say that? And certainly in some countries, the fear of man is, is, is more even than what people might think of them. In some countries, people are persecuted and killed for sharing the truth of the gospel. But as we've just read in chapter 14, Jesus' priority for us to seek and to save the lost must come above our priority to save face. Jesus' priority to seek and save the lost, even in such countries, must come above our priority to preserve our own lives. This is part of counting the cost of what it is to follow Jesus. We see this earlier in the book of Luke, in chapter 9, verses 23 to 25. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? We have to make an active decision as we choose to follow Jesus to tell other people the gospel, to take on his priorities as our own. And as I've said, it is not easy. But, and this is key when we do this, in stepping out in faith, even if there is a cost, the reward is infinitely worthwhile. Because when we are obedient to God in this way, when we are obedient to God in seeking the lost, when they turn their hearts to him, as we've read, it brings joy to God in heaven. Just let that settle for a minute. When we are obedient to God, it brings joy to God in heaven. He is the source. God is the source of all of our joy. Every good thing comes from him. In his absence, there is no goodness. There is no joy. There is no rejoicing. But in his infinite kindness, he has chosen to use us as his messenger of grace to people around us. And when this message is received, when this message is responded to, it brings joy to our heavenly Father and all heaven rejoices. To be used by God in this way is not a chore, it's not a hardship, it's not a cost. Rather, that he would use us by nature sinners deserving of wrath to be the bearers of such infinite joy is astounding. This is grace upon grace upon grace. So Grace Church, let's be diligent to open our ears and to hear Jesus this morning. And in doing so, recognizing our full and total reliance upon him. And let's be stewards of this incredible grace that he has poured out upon us to those around us, knowing that the infinite joy and the glory that is set before us is worth giving our whole lives for. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are dumbfounded when we consider the extent of your grace towards us, Lord, that you would seek after every unrepentant heart and when we are found, when they are found, Lord, it brings you joy. I pray, Lord, that this morning, this afternoon, I pray, Lord, that you would settle in our hearts this truth, Lord, that we would see and experience and understand better the magnitude of this grace. By nature, we are sinners deserving of wrath. Yet you call us into your presence you gift us what is owed to Jesus, what Jesus deserves. And then you use us in order to bring joy to you. Lord Jesus, help us to see and to feel this, Lord. To understand more the truth of this incredible grace. I pray in Jesus' name.